Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. You guys, I'm Pete Wright, and I think they put Black Widow on wires in this one. I really do. <laughs> do you think? <laughs> uh, today, we're talking about Minute 120, which begins with... Fury recognizing the council's decision and ends with Nat's leap of faith. Back on the show, it is Father <laughs> David Mowry. Hello, Father. Uh, hey, fellas. Now, don't, now don't distract me. I, I heard there was a leap of faith, so I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to catch <laughs> who's ever jumping. Okay. All right. Oh, oh I, I got to get up on the roof. <laughs> yeah. Be prepared. It's a little high. All right. We are coming in. Uh, you know, we're, we didn't talk about this yesterday in our conversation as we're kind of looking at forlorn cap as he's kind of looking at the landscape of the, of destruction through the city and kind of, uh, seeing the New York that he knows, uh, kind of in pieces. We get, uh, the, the voiceover coming in of World Security Councilwoman Pamela Hawley, played by Jenny Agatha, coming in over the line talking about this, uh, I don't know, I guess kind of this position that the council has made a decision and basically, uh, they want Fury to launch a missile and take out Manhattan is kind of their position. I mean, it's an interesting scene, I guess. It's it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's. I don't believe, have we had a chance to talk to you about the World Security Council? No, I've not had the pleasure. Let's talk about the shadowy council of omniscience. Yeah, right. Well, and is this, I, I didn't ask, but is this the reason you picked this minute or was there something else in this minute that you... Uh, this is, this whole conversation is the reason why I wanted to talk about this minute. Uh, yesterday was, was my dessert minute because there was just a bunch of whiz bang action there's also a really great scene in this minute too let's be honest but in in terms of heft uh this is uh this is it because the the very conversation to have about nuking a civilian site is one that has very deep resonance in american history and it, it continues to build upon all of these callbacks to World War II that are very subtly in the movie and have been trimmed back through you know the the, extent, uh, the deleted scene we talked about yesterday and the references to Stuttgart and last time I was in Germany and saw a man standing above others we dis- ended up disagreeing and now we have this evocation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the conversation about how what lengths do you go to in order to win a war and. Like I said yesterday, it's been commented that this is a, a 9-11 revenge movie. This is also a a time to grapple with. We dropped nuclear bombs on Japan, and that was that was morally complicated. So let's find a way to massage that into a win for this particular conflict. My God, it was just a minute ago we had Holocaust. <laughs> exactly. And now we have Japan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's wild with the choices made with some of these plot points. So crazy. And I just, I mean, I, and I, I appreciate that. uh, Well, I appreciate, uh, that's a, you know, in quotes, uh, what they're trying to kind of do here by creating kind of this, the scope of perhaps those connections. But at the same time, like I look at this, okay, there's an alien invasion. 
in the way that the film is constructed, we really don't get any sense that the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marines, like there is no U.S. military. There's no global military coming to help. It's just as far as we can tell, largely these six heroes and the New York uh, Police Department. I mean, that we do get kind of the National Guard rolling in at a certain point, but largely very, very few people are here helping and they don't really know exactly what is happening. And the decision to suddenly say, we're going to nuke it. Like, I'm just like, wow, that was, that was a leap. <laughs> like, and that takes a big leap here, but so does the World Security Council. Mm-hmm. It's like, the, I, I mean, you're not even going to try, like, maybe you should, like, try, you know, like, aim a missile at the top of Stark Tower first. See if that does something. Like, there are so many steps between A and Z, and they just skip all of them. Well, and and don't forget, like, They've been working so hard to contain the entire skirmish to three blocks. Like, really, most of the island of Manhattan is still fine. Yeah, right, right. Everyone's running out of there, but yeah. I mean, no. downtown, <laughs> Central Park, still okay. Like, everybody's going to be fine. Because in-universe, this has been all of half an hour, maybe, less. Mm-hmm. It could be. So, yeah, I agree with you, Andy. There are a number of steps in between small surgical strike team and nuclear holocaust that perhaps we could explore. We we have had reference to the National Guard and we had a couple Humvees showing up in earlier scenes with uh, normal guns. But of course, in a superhero movie, normal guns are always going to be useless unless a superhero is holding it, like in Natasha's case. So we know that the military is not going to be able to do anything about this. And that's part of the, the narrative thread here. Here as well, that even the biggest, reddest button we can push in terms of conventional weaponry, we as the audience, we know that's not going to solve the problem because we have bought into the heroes of the ones who are going to solve the problem. It, it presents raised stakes because the alien invasion of New York wasn't enough of a ticking clock. Yeah, I think there's a lot to this idea of the the stakes and what we're setting up in the context of the type of movie and the type of story we're telling this is a com- this is a story about superheroes and in P- we've had this conversation in the past when we were talking about the fact that there's a complete lack of any military presence to help at all through all of this right and we're like well they're if they had all of that, it kind of becomes Independence Day. We have huge military units. We have fighter jets all over the place fighting these uh, chariots. Like, suddenly, it's like no longer a superhero movie. It's just a sci-fi action movie. And the superheroes are diminished. And so we have to know the type of story we're telling. It has to be about these six heroes that are going to save the day. And, you know, if it was just a missile, it's just not as powerful as if it's a nuke. And so... I I get it in the scope of like the type of storytelling we're getting. A nuke makes more sense because it's a bigger, more threatening weapon to use as opposed to uh, just a little missile that's just going to take out the tower. And so I can see where there's the scope and in the type of story, we really want all of that to be there. It's it's just it's in my brain. I have to like not cross that line where I start thinking about all those other steps that would have made a lot more sense here. Right, right. Narratively, it's a superhero-sized bomb. That's what we need. Mm, we need an yeah. Iron Man-sized <laughs> bomb, and that's what we get. <laughs> right. <laughs> Perfectly sized, just for him to carry. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, the other element that we have, uh, along with our uh, shady World Security Council here, is 
that uh, kind of the position of of Director Fury w- toward his superiors and this relationship that we have here, because in the scope of, I don't know, I'm assuming some sort of protocol as far as uh, who reports to whom and who has to listen to whom and who is able to give orders and whatnot. How does this play as far as the way the Fury is like acting toward World Security Council? Are they, do we think that they're two completely different organizations and he, he answers to them when it makes sense, but he's still kind of like they're all on the same level? I mean, how are we meant to read this? Well, Powers Booth is at the higher level. Let's just get that. <laughs> Powers Booth is at the it's highest in his level. Name. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> Well, th- this is um, the kind of the classic movie problem of like, well, we're not going to get into the details of how the actual policy structure of this is set up because that's just a boring bunch of paperwork that no one actually cares about. The uh, The fact that it is a shadowy council of a bunch of grumpy middle-aged plus people uh, makes it easy for us to believe that the guy that we like with the cool eye patch is right in this particular situation. If it was someone invested with a level of authority that we understand, if it was, say, the president of the United States, we would, as the audience, we would not be as on board, especially as Americans, not as on board. It's like, you know, president, you've made a stupid decision and I'm going to ignore it. Where if it's the World Security Council, there's some good uh, America nationalism that gets stirred up like, ah, the world doesn't get to tell us what to do. Nick Fury's the cowboy who's going to save the day he's the hero we need and the one we deserve that presents us with the continued uh narrative of the superhero movie where you have the exceptional individual the one who is able to see clearly i patch notwithstanding the actual moral calculus on the ground you know if i send that bird out we already have lost everything which as an audience we believe with because we would be the ones caught up in the blast we would not be the ones making the decision to push the button so we don't want the bomb to be dropped so we inherently side with nick on this particular uh, this particular debate i find that i find that interesting largely because over the course of the movie it's nick that's been making the morally questionable calls right vis-a-vis the formation of the team and the uh sort of usurpation of the pew pew energy to make weapons and all of these things have been violating morally Coulson's body violating colson's yeah. body andy thank you for bringing that back around you weirdo um I'm, just, I, I'm not the one who did it all <laughs> i can't believe you dipped those cards in in his blood andy that Jeez, was so man. Uh, and here we have this uh, ostensibly this higher power talking to nick fury the authority in charge in the field who they have now made the rebel so now we have a rebel with a history of bad judgments in charge of everything and i wonder how we're all collectively okay with that i'm okay with it it feels good but i do think a minute at a time it's worth stopping and saying huh why do I like this guy so much? Is there something having to do with the fact that it is Samuel L. Jackson in the role that it just makes us love it when he does things like this, where he shuts the council down and just like hangs up? The amount of sass yeah. he is able to put into widening his eyeball exceeds anything I can do for the rest <laughs> of my life. Just the way that he opens his free eye at the end of his sentence communicates all the sarcastic disdain towards overbearing a authority figures you would need for an entire movie. He's just so charismatic. For sure. 
Yeah. And I think that's, I, I mean, that's purposeful casting, for lack of a better word. Like, you know what you're going to get when you put Samuel L. Jackson. You're going to get snakes on the plane. You're going to get Quentin Tarantino movies. You're going to get this bombacity that, that you know, that bombacity counts. The, to your point, Pete, about being OK with this decision, I, I think it's because we're talking about something as big as a nuclear explosion on American soil. And for all of us as Americans, we all recoil at the idea of that happening, which, again, points to the complicated history we have as a culture with our our nation being the only ones in history to have used nuclear weapons on another people. And that we we have a collective guilt about that even as we have you know people debating the the justification for doing it at the time we're no longer in 1945 so the the conversation has changed and we have the sense like that maybe that wasn't the best call and maybe when given the choice we should avoid dropping the nuclear bomb and because of that stance we can be like ah Nick Fury he agrees with with my moral sentiments so i like this guy all right thumbs up and I'm a Nick Fury moral relativist, so all of this has to be okay in the given moment. <laughs> but certainly, you know, uh, there is this sense of a confused relationship here where he gets to kind of do what he wants. And it doesn't seem like he's, I, I mean, if anything, they might like slap his hand or something like it's, it doesn't play like he's. Or or does it? Is it playing like he's going to get in trouble after all this? Like he's making decisions against the council or trying to and uh, and they're going to punish him for it. Like, I I don't really get that sense. And we don't have time for that kind of personal stake for Nick Fury in the story. Yeah, exactly. And and honestly, perhaps we kind of get our answer in the coming minutes where we find out exactly what the World Security Council does, you know. Mm -hmm. So. We've talked also a lot about uh, Maria Hill and her relationship with Fury, particularly Mm. through the deleted scenes in the film and how there was this stronger antagonism between the two. And she seemed a little more in line with the World Security Council. This moment where as as Fury is responding to the council as they're talking about, um, you know, launching on Manhattan, her face, like, I wonder, we talked a little bit in the conversation where she, you know, she brings up the bloody cards or the, the, the conversation about the cards and the realization that they had been in Colson's locker. They weren't on his person. And that's where the whole thing is revealed. And that's where he says they needed a push. It's almost like that was kind of the start of her shift and starting to see him in a different light. And now, because of this scene, especially with all that backstory, I can't help but read her face as she's listening to this conversation, realizing what the council is trying to do, realizing how how Fury is trying to respond. Like, I feel like this is kind of that point where she fully makes her shift. Is that a fair read? And Maria Hill says, Jack Nicholson was right. We do need him on that wall. <laughs> we, we do need this moral monster standing athwart the worst powers that are coming at us from the abyss. The, the, the arc of Maria Hill's character is weird that, you know, just your framing of it, that what what Fury did with Coulson's cards and Coulson's dead body makes her say, like, maybe he has a point. Maybe this guy actually yeah. has what it takes. <laughs> She's a Nick Fury moral relativist, too. 
<laughs> it's such a strange relationship. And I, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Are we better off not having that through the film? And just, I mean, I know as far as like Kobe Smulders, I would love to have seen her given more to do oh, of course. in the course of the film. But in the course of the actual story and the characters, are we better off with just leaving all that to the side and just leaving Hill kind of just as, you know, Fury's ever faithful right hand uh, soldier? For the sake of the film, I think so. I, I, and we've talked about this now for three years about this movie. The the It would have been nice had she had more. And for moments like this, it would have actually mattered. There would have been some weight because she would have had a character turn. But the more and more I think about it, and the more minutes we cruise through, the more I think this movie is already... I don't know if, if if I'm daring to say this, a little bloated. And uh, it's possible that would have made even, you know, it would have made more of a mess for this character. I'm with you. I would have loved to see more Kobe Smulders, but um, we get more Kobe Smulders el- elsewhere. Like, it's not like she's going away. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, her, her role in the narrative of the movie as uh, somewhat dour, responsible right-hand woman for fury fills the purposes of the movie very nicely it would have been nice to have a another kind of background character to offer us a way of evaluating the avengers thing uh because part of the the emotional payoff of the movie is you know the montage at the end with all the scenes from grateful new yorkers about what the avengers have done and part of the framing of the movie was the conclusion with marie hill walking out of that interview and going to work for stark and that presents a way to kind of tie up with a neat bow in a singular character that particular thread but we are we are watching a movie and so they can show us the avengers doing good they don't have to tell us about the avengers doing good with all these various characters reacting to it because pete's right there, there's only so much time and you know thankfully this is the shortest avengers movie uh so they uh <laughs> they definitely learned their lesson like oh well you want more great we'll put it in more <laughs> yeah we're looking forward to those ones <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it is a really interesting scene. Uh, any last thoughts about anything here, or should we uh, continue on in our minute? Because we've had a, already a lot to talk about just with this top part. Let's talk about archery. All right. So we go from this scene, and we find Natasha. She is driving her Chitari mobile, and uh, she's working her way ever slowly, as it turns out, up to the top of Stark Tower. She really hasn't gotten off street level. I think she's still trying to learn how to drive this thing. And uh, she finds Loki is actually behind her and blasting her. And we have this whole bit that she's going to have. Before we get into that, I just want to talk about this deleted scene here. Loki, there is this moment that would have, I assume, kind of cut in right before him showing up behind her, where Loki, he's flying on his chariot and then ends up having a conversation, another kind of mental connection conversation with the other as the other comes in and says, this is a, a minor squabble. I can't remember exactly what it is. A but little resistance. A little resistance, right. Loki kind of is, it's a blame game thing. He kind of blames it all on the fact that the Chitari lack finesse. And it, it kind of is this back and forth conversation that leads to this point where the other calls out Loki, telling him to lead them, King. And then reminds him that, you know, you have the scepter after all. And it's like it's like this weird moment of realization for Loki, like the scepter, like, oh, my God, I, I forgot I dropped that and I left it at the top of Stark Tower. right here? Yeah, right. 
Does this play at all? I think they cut it because uh, the other, it turns out, is exceptionally stacked. And he's a distraction to look at all those abs. So many. I think there's a vertical ab <laughs> going right up the center of his sternum. And it was too distracting for audiences. That's my vote. The one pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost uh, one large ab. <laughs> it's just a really Man. big Man, <laughs> right. Now, I think in, in a different... And I, boy, it, it's hard to say because there's a lot you can do with the failures of Loki to capitalize on the opportunity that's given him in the Battle of New York. I mean, the this line from the other about you're a king, so lead them made me think, yeah, there was no rallying point. There was no clear strategy. It's just open portal, question mark, question mark, question mark, step three, profit. And the there's no sense of Loki actually coordinating or saying, like, OK, this is what we need to do or it, it, nothing like what we see Captain America do, because that is the that's part of the 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 genius of this movie. Each character gets to be a foil to Loki in various ways. Natasha gets to outsmart him. Uh, we have a great moment with Clint here where the tools that he used in his service get turned back on Loki. And Captain America is a leader that Loki only wishes he could be and so on and so on. So each you know, the heroes presents an aspect that Loki fails to be. And if they leaned more into that and they had a sense of Loki kind of failing and fumbling and grasping at something in this scene, that'd be one thing. But it kind of stays at the same emotional level of Loki, like, I got this. It's fine. Everything's okay. It's never my fault. It's always every other person's fault. And we, we had enough of that in the movie already. It doesn't really add anything new to the through line. And it just leaves us with this weird question at the end. Where he's like, oh, yeah, I don't have the scepter. But then it's like, that's never pursued in the film after that point yeah. anyway. So it's like, I can see why they just is like this. Well, nobody's going to miss this. It's kind of useless. Uh, but that does take us then to the actual scene as Loki shows up behind Natasha and starts blasting her. And uh, she calls for Hawkeye to help her. And I was like, oh, the call out. This was, I guess, you know, we've been trying to guess, uh, like, each of their names in. Natasha gets called out by uh, Luchkov earlier in the film when he says, the Black Widow. Uh -huh. And and here we have uh, Hawkeye getting called out for the first time. It's, I mean, it's kind of nice, but at the same time, of all people, she's always the one who knows she's him as Clint. She's always Clint, Clint. So. <laughs> right? Like, I was surprised she even knew his call sign. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's like when they're in the field. But, you know, then again, that doesn't make any sense either because he he's the one who just said, what are you doing, Nat? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> Unless she's trying to do like a brand shift. She was the Nat because, you know, she's kind of small and buzzing around and irritating. <laughs> oh, people. yeah. She's but, leveling up. She's, she's like, no, I, I want to pivot away from that. I like Black Widow better. That, that's my my manager says that's going to be stronger for my, my representation and, and my opening right. up opportunities. All about the about the brand dollars, yo. <laughs> I want to think that this is now actually some meta joke from Marvel. Like there was this point back in the '60s when they were coming up with this character, and they were going to call her the Nat, and they like, uh, you know, had a little meeting about it. Like, does that name work if we call her the Nat? And they kind of like were coming up with all these other names, and they landed. Oh no, Black Widow. That's actually a little more interesting. Let's do that instead. And so I love that this was like some meta joke that they were pulling, but again. 
Can't imagine that, but boy, that would be great. <laughs> the gnat. <laughs> Why did you call her the gnat? You gave her a red hourglass belt buckle, you guys. <laughs> like, oh my oh, God, I didn't even notice wow. that. <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah, no operational security here. Yeah, maybe Clint's still a little woozy from his pop art filter. Maybe he's not quite yeah. <laughs> back into ComSec. Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> Um, directionally, I, this is kind of funky because Nat seems to be coming up, not 42nd Street, because you can't, there's no East River behind her. You do see her turn when the shot that starts around 45 seconds into this minute, uh, it looks like they're turning onto 42nd Street coming up 2nd Avenue, like way down almost to the river. The buildings don't completely match, but again, it's a probably CG set anyway. So, you know, I'm sure it's fake, but it does beg the question when uh when she calls for hawkeye uh the fact that there's a shot of him where it looks like he's looking at her right where it's like now what are you doing Mm -hmm. it it seems like in that particular shot he's looking and and he is hawkeye maybe this is this is the answer he can see really far around corners and everything maybe that's maybe that's what it's all part you know of what he's using, power. Andy? A tiny convex mirror <gasps> on the ground. <laughs> oh, mirror callback. That's why that was there. Mirror callback, yep. It was a mirror that, you know, arrow. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> it's, uh, it is this whole setup for him to like have this conversation. We do see them round the corner, and they're coming up 42nd Street. And Hawkeye, Hawkeye needs to see what's happening, because that that's the, the drawback of the... The archery power set. It's a line of sight weapon, so he can't do anything unless he's able to have that line of sight. So I, I just, I think that shot just allows us to believe that he's going to be able to do something about this. Very straight line character. That's it. That's what he's known for. Straight, straight lines, <laughs> lines all the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of straight lines, Nat has not been taking one, as we've said. She literally was right below Clint when she hopped onto this chariot. Like, that's where she grabbed it at street level. And uh, and again, she's trying to to drive this ch- ch- the Chitari chariot through knives that she has in the back of a Chitari that's actually piloting it. So I can imagine it's a little tricky to learn how to steer this thing. But I guess she's taken an entire loop around this three mile uh, per, or three block perimeter and is finally like starting to angle up, I guess, is kind of what we're getting here. Uh, but again, they're below Clint and he's at 400 feet at the top of the building that he's on. The top of Stark Tower is 800 feet in the air. So they have a heck of a climb to go from where he sees them come around the corner and then they round the Chrysler building and basically start up at that point. And that's like. That is a, a very steep climb, and and in the scope of everything that we have here with the arrow and him shooting and uh, eye lines and everything, there is never this sense of of height as far as, like, uh, Loki, like, when he catches the arrow and looks back, he should be looking practically straight down, but he's looking, like, back and up, and so it's just one of these things. It's kind of funky the way it plays, but it is an awfully fun scene. So let's talk a little bit about this fantastic arrow action that we have here. What do you think of this? Did you enjoy this when you saw it in the theaters, Father David? This was great. Uh, this is everything that I wanted from a man with a bow and arrow involved in a superhero movie. I wanted 
him to be going to extreme lengths. I mean, we already had a couple of really great trick shots where he's shooting without looking and he's you know looking away from his target, looking at something else as he's letting the arrow go. So there's already been a lot of that. So uh, those scenes have established that Hawkeye is good at this. It is not silly to have a man with a bow and arrow helping out in this situation. And so it primes you for the joke of the scene with the, the arrow being caught by Loki and oh, just the perfect smug look on Tom Hiddleston's face. If you looked up <laughs> smug in the dictionary, that's what you would find. Oh, he's so satisfied with himself, which makes it mm, so delicious when that arrow just blows up in his face and he goes tumbling down. That goes back to what I said earlier. You, you get this chance for Clint to use what Loki had had abused against Loki. Loki had used Clint's tactical abilities and trick arrows to uh, destroy the engines on the helicarrier. And so now those come back to bite Loki, who, who really should have known better, but he's he's too arrogant to remember what all of his little pawns were able to do. I, I would just like to add to your uh, smug comment that this is sort of a smug off because there's a little <laughs> smugness on Hawkeye, too. Oh, yeah. And I love it mm -hmm. because dramatically, I don't know who to root for with all the smuggery going on. <laughs> Eventually, someone's going to lose. And you, it's a rug pull because Loki catches the arrow. You think, oh, you were too smug, Clint. Mm -hmm. And then it blows up. Oh, no, you were too smug, Loki. It's like perfect. It could not be better. I love this <laughs> sequence. And to your point, just the fact that Hawkeye gets such a clear win mm -hmm. is just awesome with the arrow so great it's it is very fun one of his explosive arrows and i didn't realize this but the explosive arrows i guess he can actually set them so they can either detonate upon impact or he can actually change it to be timed or apparently even controlled by his bow he has a button on his bow apparently that he can also trigger to detonate it when he actually wants to. So there's a whole thing going on with these explosive arrows of his. And I'm glad that we didn't have a cut to him detonating the arrow from his bow. I think that would have that would have been a, too much in the scene. I, I think just the the image of Loki's smug face getting blown out of the sky is perfection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I do actually like the moment, uh, speaking of Hawkeye and his abilities and everything, uh, you know, the hawk and his ability to see and everything, that shot where you've got kind of that crash zoom on on the two chariots as they round the corner and start coming up 42nd Street around 42 seconds or so, I can't help but want to think, and I, again, it, it kind of fits in with the documentary approach that we've talked about a lot over the course of the film where they kind of find, crash in on something and find it. But I can't help because we're kind of looking from Clint's point of view almost that it's like his Hawkeye's like coming into action and like zooming in on what he's looking at to really get a better seeing it with his special eyes. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. But yes, we do get apparently uh, this this quick rate of ascension as Loki's climbing up on his chariot uh, 400 feet and he crashed more than that because he really comes down yeah. as his chariot explodes and he crashes down landing on the uh, the patio at Stark Tower at the at the penthouse there. And his uh, chariot, of course, takes out the ST of Stark. We've already lost the most of the R and the K. And so now we're largely left with the A as if intended. Mm. It's kind of a nice little thing. Mm. 
one thing that we don't see with all of this as Loki comes crashing down is the scepter, which theoretically is laying like right next to him. And it's kind of funny, especially having just talked about this conversation with the other, that without even intending it, he would have actually landed right next to the scepter. Right. <laughs> He's a class act. Yeah, it's it's very funny. All right. Well, we get at the very end of this minute, um, Nat doing what she intended, uh, you know, from whenever she decided she was going to jump onto a chariot and fly up to the top of Stark Tower. This is this crazy move that she does here, again, proving that, uh, you know, when you are trained in the Red Room, you have no fear of heights uh, because she does this flip off of the chariot. And uh, we don't get to actually, it's very funny cut because it's it's like mid-air as she's jumping, but we get to see her hurling through the air as hopefully we'll find out in tomorrow's, or uh, I guess in Monday's conversation, we'll find out if she actually makes it to the roof or not. Can the gnat still fly? Tune in next week. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I saw this same jump on Spider-Man when he was on the electric company, y'all. Like, this jump <laughs> lo- is the fakest jump of the movie. It's just, it's just not great. It's not great with the motion of the background. It is a misguided compositing job. I don't love it. I, I don't love it. Is it misguided for 2012, though? No, it's not good for 1975. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In terms of action scenes, we we have bullet higher than the Avengers. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it just looks. It just looks like the the physicality of the stunt looks so like okay. She's in front of a screen. We're pulling her up and then putting her down. And in the meantime, she's on a hip roller and she's flipping. And it just. It's weird. It's just weird to me. I think it would, like, maybe it'd be better if she just dove off. Maybe it'd be better. I don't know what it would be, but it just, this one makes me think about the stunt player and not the movie. It absolutely takes me out of it. I don't know. Well, I can see it. I can see it. it it's more the uh, the landing that I, I hope that she pulls off uh, on Monday, but the... Uh, we'll never know. We'll never know. Uh, but she seems, like, just, it seems to me, going pretty fast. Uh, that Natasha is, <laughs> and you know, inertia's inertia's a real pain when when you're landing on a rooftop. That, as we've seen, however, is the Stark Tower is covered in sand, apparently, uh, as opposed to yeah, like anything a, harder, right, like so, a gravel top. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's it will be interesting. I'm sure we'll have fun talking about that. Then um, we're at the end of the minute. I think that we should do our Christ in the Cape for this particular. For this bit. Well, I'll be happy to, to wrap up uh, my my interspersement so from Stuttgart to New York. It's been a whirlwind tour, but I'm happy to uh, come in for a landing with Natasha here at the end of, of Minute 120. So congratulations on getting to the two-hour mark, you guys. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you. Just just to put it very briefly for, for this Christ in the Cape segment, just to go back to our discussion about the debate between the World Council and Nick Fury, I think there's another reason that we side with Nick Fury, because Nick is making a relational choice. He is choosing to trust 
the people that he has put into this situation. He is trusting the Avengers, trusting the characters that we've come to know and love. And he is rejecting a brute force kind of technocratic solution to the problem. And then any movie we see where the nuke has to be launched, uh, what's the line? God help us all. You know, there is something that has gone wrong for us to have to choose this broad spectrum, indiscriminate approach to the problem. And the problem is evil. There is evil happening in Manhattan. And things are not going well. There is an alien occupying force that is messing everything up. And as a Catholic priest, I look at this and I, I think about how this reflects a certain Christian imagination, this whole debate between Nick and the World Security Council and any situation in which this kind of uh, nuclear strike option is discussed within fiction. The Christian message presents God's solution to the problem of evil, not as the flood. The story of the flood in the book of Genesis is something that God says never again. And I, I, the reason for that story is to demonstrate that well, whatever God's going to do about the problems in this world, he is not going to sweep away the innocent with the just. He is not going to have a nuclear strike option to this. And it takes the rest of Scripture to build up to his eventual solution, the, the tactical surgical strike, the relational choice in sending his son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Word made flesh, who dwells in and among the evil situation, confronting it. Now, not with the face-punching of superhero antics, but with the embrace of forgiveness and mercy and a a more effective solution than simply wiping all of the world's humanity off the map and starting over again. So just to it's it's a very subtle thing, but I think is reflective of a ideal that comes out of the Christian tradition. We put our trust in people. We put our trust in relationships that whatever technocratic solutions we can come up to to problems, there is a part of us that recognizes their inhumanity, their unfittingness to the problems that we face. It, it's a matter of risk and reward. Yeah, the nuke is kind of a low risk, low reward strategy because you don't have a lot left after it. And the relational choice is the exact opposite. It's a high risk but high reward strategy. If the hero is able to succeed, then we succeed with everything. We don't have to compromise. Uh, now, of course, the the, pers the story of the Avengers elides anyone who happens to actually die in the Battle of New York. We have a little montage scene at the end of a memorial wall, but uh, even the deleted the lead scene had one of the only deaths we actually see on screen of a character who had lines but the the success seems and feels total because we don't lose any of our heroes and that again is you know i i I wanted to talk about Tony Stark being the Jesus figure again, because that goes back to one of our first conversations about how he comes out of the cave and ascends into the sky. <laughs> and so here <laughs> again, we have Tony, you know, you know, he already has a Messiah complex, so we don't need to encourage him any further in that. <laughs> yeah, but there, is, right. there continue to be these echoes of the Christian idea that we can trust a person in the midst of evil to solve a problem in a way that technology or or more inhuman systematic solutions could solve, but we would lose so much more that the cure would be worse than the disease. That's a, a really interesting point. And I suppose that speaks largely to, uh, in some capacity, like why superhero films have become so popular and work so well. It gives us that 
person that, that somebody we can kind of connect with and idealize and and ideally see ourselves as like if i'm in that situation i may not have the superpowers but i'd like to think i'd be able to do that i'd like to i'd like to be able to look up to somebody who could do these things as opposed to like this nameless faceless organization that is doing something else that you have no control over it it feels like there's a there's more connective tissue um in telling stories like this It, it even though they're super it still feels more human well, and the humanity is the most important part, especially when you talk about the cure versus the disease. If the Jatari are not the anthropomorphized model of disease, I don't know what else is already, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a a perfect sort of macro organism devouring humanity. Exactly. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, as always, Father David, uh, we have such fun on these uh, shows, uh, having these conversations with you. Um, and, uh, you know, it has been great uh, kind of spreading our time with you out a little longer over the course of the season. We certainly appreciate all of these conversations. So thanks so much for joining us over the course of five minutes uh, from Stuttgart to New York. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, the Avengers is is a, a lot of fun, and I enjoy talking about it with you and also discovering all the things that get revealed when you slow down and take it a minute at a time. But, but then I was I was watching the movie earlier today just to get myself in the mindset of the whole context, and I sat down and was like, okay, I'll just watch this for you know the fifteen minutes before and after. But I ended up watching the whole second half of the movie because it was just it was so much fun. It was just a delight. Like oh, it was a fun time. So uh, it's been equally fun to discuss it with. With, uh, you fellas. Well, we sure appreciate it, man. We sure appreciate it. Tell everybody one last time about your website and where they can check out what you're up to, all your, I think you have a bunch of homilies on there and everything, and uh, you have your uh, all of your um, minutes, other uh, other podcasts that you've guested on. Yeah, so you can find that at fatherdavidmowry.com. That's F-A-T-H-E-R David M-O-W-R-Y dot com. Uh, in addition to pulling together all my various guest appearances on Movies by Minutes podcasts, and there, there are a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> Just I also also have started throwing up uh, recordings of my Sunday homilies, which, uh, as of this recording, will start up again very soon. I've, I've been on vacation, but I'm back. I, you know, I got, I landed from my flight from Stuttgart back to New York, so that that's why I didn't have anything <laughs> recorded. So uh, that's, as I said before, much more Christ and less the cape. But uh, who knows? There may be a Marvel reference or two thrown in. You just have to to listen to see. Uh, but uh, those will be available up there under the homilies section as well. And every so often, I will use my Twitter for something. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at at FR Mowry. That's F-R-M-O-W-R-Y. Fantastic. Well, we will have the links for all that in the show notes. Remember, if you're not seeing the show notes in your podcatcher, just go to our website, marvelmovieminute.com, and you can get everything there. Uh, It has been a great week of great conversations. We'll be back on Monday uh, to talk about Minute 120, and we can finally find out, will Nat make her landing? quite the cliffhanger so (laughs) pete thanks as always more importantly andy next week somebody's getting puny (laughs) until next time true believers Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, 
If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.